Hey everybody, it's Alex from the Equity Crew. A couple of small housekeeping things before we dig into this week's app. We are doing a survey. We want to know who you are. We want to understand better what you want from the show. So there's a link to the survey in this week's Equity Post on TechCrunch and also in the show notes. It's not that long. We'd love it if you would take it. We're going to use this to make the show better for you. Equity is now you know over three years old, over 200 episodes in. I personally think it's our best ever hosting lineup and we're really excited about the future, but it's a great time to check in, listen, and make sure that your voice is heard. And as a sweetener, uh, if you take the survey, you will get a code at the end for half off a year's sub to Extra Crunch. And of course, we're always taking feedback, commentary, and notes, and no rude jokes over at equitypod at techcrunch.com. Okay, talk soon. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I am joined, as always, by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I'm doing well. My my basil plant is uh, coming back from the dead, so that's always a good sign. I thought we weren't going to do COVID-19 personal updates at the start of the show. I thought that was off the, uh, the list. I didn't talk about my sourdough starter, but now that you got me started... <laughs> Um, okay, putting a pin in that, we'll get back to that never. Uh, Tosh, you're also here. You're one of our venture capital reporters focused on the early stage. How are you? I'm doing well. My COVID-19 update is that I'm meditating more, but I've also developed an eye twitch. So there's that <laughs> for mindfulness right now. That's plus one, minus one. I'll throw in one to the mix if we're going to do this. Uh, I just finished a book of uh, lectures from a famous um, Zen dude who used to hang out at the Zen Center in San Francisco, and it was uh, medium good. So there you go. Is it about motorcycles? No, it is not Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a book that I refuse to read on general literary principles. Um, before we all get fired, though, we have a big show today. Uh, one that's actually exciting. We have a, a game at the end that's going to be fun because everyone knows it's a game this time, not like last time, when no one knew that it was a game. Uh, but we're going to start with probably the most exciting funding round uh, that I've heard of in some time because it's all about pizza and um, Slice raising some money. Tosh, were you familiar with Slice before it raises $43 million? I was solely because um, of Twitter, but so Slice is kind of this online ordering and marketing platform for independent local pizzerias. It picked up $43 million, which is a lot of money, um, and I actually used it the day before it raised to get Mediterranean food. So even though it's focused on local pizza, it's obviously doing more. <laughs> okay, so Slice is not like Grubhub, because Grubhub works with restaurants of all types, takes an enormous cut and can generally be viewed as kind of rent-seeking on the restaurant space. Slice has a lower per-order per cap, I think, on fees, something like that. Is that right, Tosh? Yeah, I think it has a baseline of two twenty-five dollars for, mm -hmm. for each order, which I think is nice in a time where people are being like more active and less passive about online ordering. And to be clear, when we say baseline rate, what we mean is it, it is actually capped at a two twenty-five kind of flat rate per order. So that means even if you're ordering one pizza or 10 pizzas, Slice is only taking the same amount no matter what, whereas Grubhub, Uber Eats, and most of the other delivery companies take a, a, a take rate of the check size. So the more that you order, the more that they get paid. And if you're thinking that take rates five, six, seven percent, it can be up to like 25, 30 percent. And this can really impact the margins of small businesses. So a slice by focusing on one, not slice, but piece, say, of the food market with pizza and smaller businesses may give them a shot at the kind of like mobile ordering experience they couldn't do on their own and therefore might help smaller companies stay in business. Uh, my question, though, Danny, this is to you. 
$43 million from KKR is an enormous wager on the business, and therefore there's a lot of expectations of financial growth. With this relatively um, gracious, kind model towards restaurants, can Slice become big enough to really grow into this? Slice is actually a really interesting company if you go back in history. It was founded in 2009. It was actually sort of bootstrapped. I want to say it's like a friends and family. I don't know exactly the details, but it, it, it's been around for 11 years, raised a seed in 2015, so about six years after its launch, and then has quickly raised a lot of money. It raised uh, $17 million in 2017, $20 million in 2019, and now a quick hit of $43 million this year, led by KKR. And I think, I think the magic here, and for longtime equity uh, listeners, you've heard this before, of Pizza is the largest category of food delivery in the United States. It's a very simple thesis, right? You can do the whole market like Grubhub or Uber Eats, or you can do pizza, which is like a majority of all delivery in the United States. And and Slice has done two things, I think, really well. One is by focusing on pizza, this kind of existing delivery market, they don't have to kind of invent out a whole cloth how do you deliver Chinese food and Thai and sushi and a bunch of other categories. But second and most importantly, it doubled down on the pizzerias. It's only independent stores. And so it's not Domino's, it's not Pizza Hut. It's, you know, your local small, medium business owner who doesn't necessarily know how to do online ordering and it's friendly and gets them on board. And I think they all talk to each other. That's the part of the magic here. And so one of the things that came out of the news announcement was that 90% of their, quote, 12,000 plus pizzerias have stayed open during the COVID-19 coronavirus situation. While other restaurants are struggling to see 90% stay open is a pretty good rate or success rate keeping, I think we generically call them mom and pop restaurants, but small businesses that do, that do food and business. This might be a more optimistic view than, than it deserves at this point. But you know when Uber had like a really shitty stretch of time, like that's when Lyft was able to like rise up. And mm -hmm. I just wonder if like Slice right now is going to face some like really sticky growth in that way because people are thoughtful about the way that they order from from local businesses. Like I think all of us are thinking a little bit more about how restaurants, it's the most obvious sector that's being impacted other than travel, maybe. I think the uh, I, I agree 100%. I think the, you know, look, the unit economics here have to be better. We, we a couple months ago talked about a company called Food Panda, which was focused on the Chinese food for Chinese people food market has done super well in that context. And I think I think these more vertical uh, specific companies just make more sense. There's less marketing costs, there's less overhead, much more dense in terms of restaurants. And if you can kind of build those marketplaces, it's really, really strong. I'm, uh, I want to talk about the food delivery market a bit more broadly because there was some news this week that I think maybe shaking some boots in Postmates office. There's several reports out this week that Uber is considering buying Grubhub and what is maybe an all stock deal, maybe 1.9 Uber shares per Grubhub share, et cetera. The question is, what does the world look like if you take one of the food delivery leading players, say top three, and smash it into the other top three player and create the largest food delivery kind of conglomerate in the US? Question one is, were we surprised, I guess, again, by this news? I don't think we were, but Tosh, I'm curious if this took you off guard. It To me, it just doesn't seem possible that it's actually going to happen. Like, I don't know, I'm a little bit weary that it's going to pass through because it's just such a big market share. Uber in general is is kind of a hot mess. And I just wonder how they're going to be, I guess, finishing up a clean deal at this point. Well, and I think there's some serious uh, antitrust concerns, obviously, in terms of consolidation. But one of the things that I find really interesting is when you break it up by geography. So Alison Griswold over at Quartz, who got data from Second Measure, showed that in key delivery markets like New York City, Grubhub actually owns a 62% of the delivery market in NYC compared to 17% for Uber Eats, right? So so actually Grubhub almost has, it has a majority, but it's like a dominant majority in the market. And so if you actually connect the two together, I mean, it's essentially a monopoly. 
And what's interesting is I think the the DOJ uh, and the Federal Trade Commission have gotten a lot more sophisticated about these sorts of roll-ups when they affect local markets. You see this with airline routes in particular. When airlines merge, they are actually very focused on individual markets as in like Philadelphia to Boston or Boston to Fort Lauderdale. And in some cases, those airlines have to divest from certain markets in order to uh, clear the deal through. So even if this got consummated, the question is, is like, would they still be allowed to operate in cities like New York City, where they would literally be 80% of the market for delivery in the, in the city? The same data also blew my socks off when I was reading through it. I didn't know that DoorDash had 65% share of the SF market. I would have put Uber Eats at a much larger share than I saw in this data set. But I do agree, Danny, when you add the two together in select places, it does become an 80% share, which is an effectively a monopoly. And then, you know, if Postmates dies or gets consumed by someone else, then there's really only two players left. And a duopoly doesn't sound particularly attractive. I will say, though, as we all saw, investors love this idea. Uber stock went up. Grubhub stock really went up. And uh, I'm curious if this is going to impact the pricing discussion between the two companies, because surely now Grubhub isn't going to settle for something modest when investors are expecting such a high return on their on their shares. One last thing about this. We all agree that it has to be all stock, right? Because Uber wants to hold on to all of its cash, I presume. That was my read of the situation. I want to make sure that I wasn't totally nuts. It, it It's presumably uh, shares, which is probably one of the sticking points, right? So they may end up having to sweeten the deal a little bit with more cash to make it more palatable. Uber announced this week that it was actually taking out $900 million in bonds and is doing some other uh, corporate financial machinations to sort of give it some more cash flow and more cash on the balance sheet. So it's possible that they're gearing up to offer a more cash-friendly offer, but we'll have to wait to see. That's exactly what I said. And then a VC told me that I was wrong. So I dropped it. And now I should have <laughs> held on to it. This is why I shouldn't listen to people on Twitter. I should just keep my own thoughts to myself and then things will be better. Okay, let's keep moving on. In the on-demand space, the theme here, I guess, is kind of like what's changed in the COVID world. And one of the things that's really changed has been uh, grocery delivery. Instacart, et cetera, had seen pretty reasonable growth over the preceding years, but certainly I think in the last three months have exploded. We've all seen the data, heard the stories, read about the growth of, uh, of grocery delivery, Instacart turned a profit and is hiring a bunch more shoppers. And I'm just kind of in awe that they didn't go down when uh, they began to blow up. Also, it's been a labor story. Our own Megan Rosticki has been covering the, the labor side of this. There's been a number of complaints uh, and the, you know, Instacart's right in the middle of that. But you know, reading stories about the company's growth, they said it blew past their 2020 plans then their 2021 plans, then their 2022 plans, all within the space of a couple of weeks. Information's Amir Afradi. He reported this week that Instacart sold 700 million worth of groceries per week in the first two weeks of April, which was a 450% increase from December. So, I mean, if that, if that growth is truly like, I mean, the, the real question, of course, is in a year from now, you know, as they grow from 200,000 to 750,000 shoppers, you know, maybe a million people are like employed to go to a grocery store, which kind of blows my mind. But in a year from now, is that still going to be true? Like, are, is it so convenient? Is the price kind of price competitive that like, hey, it's so it's just such a great experience that we've had going the last couple of weeks. I can't imagine going back to a grocery store myself and and shopping the aisles anymore. Like you have to hope that the consumer tastes change in terms of grocery delivery and people just don't go back when it's safe to do so. Totally, Danny. I mean, I'm, I'm really worried about these. I, I think it, it increased its shopper network by 250% in a little bit over a month. Any of those those shoppers, even though even if they're part-time employees, even if they're not, even if they're doing other jobs, like I'm so worried about what's going to happen to them once the pandemic is somewhat resolved. And I don't know Instacart's plan for that. We see Instacart going from like a luxury to being an essential service. And I think it's going to 100% go back to being a luxury once it's okay to go to grocery stores again. My partner and I have definitely become more frugal 
in the last couple of months. And so, I don't know, to me, if I could cut out an expense, I probably would just because I've just generally become more conscious about savings and that sort of stuff because the job market feels a lot more shaky. So I'm more afraid as a human. And Instacart hasn't gotten, that I've read anywhere, materially cheaper for end users. It has rejiggered its pay process for shoppers, I think they're called. But, you know, I'd, it was expensive before COVID. It's going to be expensive afterwards because it's hard to do grocery delivery. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, but I have a question, Tosh. You wrote about this, I think, for us. When they say they're going to hire shoppers, uh, do we know the ratio between those that are full-time, part-time versus kind of gig contract workers? Because there's a mix in the Instacart universe. I, I don't know where the numbers kind of shake out. Yeah. So good question. Question I had for them. And they didn't really break it down in that way. I guess a, a two of the hiring announcements might add a little bit of color. So they they hired 250,000 more, more shoppers, which are oftentimes part-time and they can choose their hours and that's the flexible work. So more of the traditional gig economy. But they also doubled its care team from 12,000 agents to 3,000 agents. And I imagine those are more full-time roles. To be clear, those agents aren't supporting the new workers as much as they're supporting the customers of Instacart. So again, the same question on how those workers are going to be supported post-COVID is like not potentially answered any clearer than before. <laughs> kind of pivoting a little bit with Instacart, you see this really cool example of, you know, becoming newly important, but there's also the more sturdy businesses that have always been important. And I think that Shopify is this really cool example of that. Alex, I know you wrote a piece with Ron Miller. Can you kind of walk us through Shopify's, I guess, you know, ever importance and how it's doing right now. Yeah, I think kind of quietly or outside of the, the view of a lot of people, Shopify has become a real pillar of the uh, the digital economy and kind of helps power e-commerce for a huge number of companies, large and small. And, you know, maybe because it's based in Canada, maybe because it's, you know, kind of behind the scenes, I don't think it gets the kind of the respect that it deserves. It, it feels a bit under-celebrated in the, in the tech sense because tech loves to celebrate itself as much as 100%. it possibly can. But, you know, the company's worth tens of billions of dollars now. It's growing like a weed and has really seen its share price appreciate too. I think it was about $750 a share last time I looked, which was up pretty sharply in the last six months. And, you know, it's of course seen an upsurge in demand and kind of use in the COVID-19 era as e-commerce takes a larger share of uh, broader commerce itself. And um, I didn't know this, but Shopify works with larger brands too, with a thing called Shopify Plus, which now contributes about about a quarter of its uh, MRR. And, uh, it, you know, it just does so much stuff. It processes like $7.3 billion in Q1. And it's it's just an enormous business. And why doesn't it get more love? It's my my kind of core question. But I don't know, Tosh, when, when did you first hear about Shopify? You know, I've, I've, I've heard about it much more as I've been covering like fintech companies that are like, we can plug into Shopify. Yeah. And I obviously knew that it was a big deal from just how much it kept being mentioned in, within other companies. But I guess I got recently excited about it when I heard about their redo of a pre-existing app called Shop. It's yes. like this this app that's going to be able to have any, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, e-commerce business that's using Shopify in one place. So would be cool to see if it creates a whole new shopper experience for people right now. The question then becomes, where does Shopify sit in the customer's mind? Does it sit only behind the business itself or does it sit as a brand that the customers go to? And that there's kind of a weird straddling effect there. Ron and I tried to tease out uh, different product decisions it made, like when it introduced payments for the first time and how that's worked out, when it introduced Shopify Plus, how that's worked out, and try to kind of map out how the company grew to be as large as it is, concluding with this new app, Shop, that came out this year. And uh, the question is, can Shopify challenge Amazon's marketplace 
or does it stand in the background and only really power other other shops and therefore not the brand in the same way? But uh, there was some news out about Shopify this week about how one VC may or may not have missed out on like fifteen, seventeen billion dollars in returns. And so we're gonna we're gonna torture Danny a little bit and uh, <laughs> try to learn why VCs would sell stock in a company that they invested in early, right at the time of an IPO. This story was written by David Jeans over at Forbes, and the headline was really simple. It said, early Shopify investor Bessemer turned a $5 million bet into $500 million. It could have been $22 billion today. And the idea was really simple. Uh, when Bessemer, when, when Shopify went public, Bessemer sold its shares in the company rather than holding on to it. And because of the, uh, as you mentioned, Alex, the share price growth over the last couple of years for Shopify, Bessemer left a lot of money on the table. What's complicated uh, for all VC firms is like, what do you do when you exit? When you get cash, obviously you give that cash back to your LPs. It's really simple. But when you go public, or in some cases when you're doing a stock deal, maybe like the Uber Grub situation, you get stock and you have to decide either to hold it on to it, to either give that stock over to LPs or to sell it and give cash back. And different firms have different points of view. Some firms have a policy of trying to sell as quickly as possible, whereas other firms say, hey, let's hold on to and try to optimize the exit price that we can get, um, which ultimately comes back as carry. You know, if you're getting Mm -hmm. 20, 25, 30% of carry and you're doubling the price on the public markets, that's really nice to get that money back in your own pockets. You know, in this case, it sounds like Bessemer could have made a lot more money holding on to it. But again, Bessemer is an early stage VC firm. You know, it's hard to also do public market equity research and investment and in trying to time a, a, a deal. I have a question. I just was wondering, like, I guess, one, how common it is to to do something like this and also how common it is to tell a reporter it. I was so surprised when I saw the story happen. It's a humble brag, isn't it, guys? Is they it? turned five hundred and five. They turned five into five hundred, but it could have been more. I mean, that was oh, a humble brag. I guess, yeah. I guess I was like, I thought, I thought for a second the, maybe they were just. It's being the anti-anti-portfolio. Like, <laughs> it's it's um. I, I I you know again every firm has it differently, and and I think every policy will have its wins and losses. Sometimes it makes sense to sell you know quickly. We certainly have seen a lot of companies. If you sold Luckin at the IPO, you did really, really damn well. Um, even though if you, you know, didn't, and if you didn't, and you waited for coronavirus causing all the CEOs and the CTO and the CEO all to leave, either because of coronavirus or the ninety-five percent fraud going one, one of the two, probably one coronavirus, two. probably yeah. not the ninety-five percent fraud. Nah. But but regardless, uh, you 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 know you you win. Like you actually sold before the the collapse, so to speak. Same with WeWork. If you had managed to sell at one of those last kind of rounds, you said, hey, we don't want to wait for the IPO. We're going to sell before it kind of closes. You would have made all of your money, whereas everyone who kind of held lost. So sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. What I, I think is interesting, though, is, is how different firms kind of approach it, right? Some firms really do want to optimize for their returns. And others are like, hey, we're just early stage investors. We really don't know when to sell a public, you know, publicly traded company. RLPs can figure that out. They have teams. If they want to buy, go to NASDAQ and hit .com and, and, and purchase your shares. Yeah. And sometimes you save a lot of money if you had kept, I don't know, like shares of Blue Apron post IPO, you would have taken a huge loss. The Shopify example, though, does sting a little bit. It went public at $17 a share and it is now at 748. That is an insane amount of value appreciation in only a couple of years. Caveat on this is that Shopify has seen growth and value ahead of its revenue growth. And so you could argue, I'm not saying that I am, but you could argue it's a little bit overvalued. I think a VC told me today that it's a 38x forward revenue. Which is aggressive, I think, is the polite way of putting that. I, I remain really ambitious, and uh, you know, I, I believe in the company a lot. I, I think it's very similar to the Amazon story. Where you, wasn't there a point where like Amazon hit like a buck? I'm, I'm probably exaggerating us slightly, but like you could have made some crazy multiple on the public markets. You could have just bought shares in like 2001 in Amazon, and in 20 years, gone up like what is it, 100, 200 x? 
in in valuation, probably even more than that. And and so like I think it's actually a very similar story and possibly more balanced because as Shopify grows, it has multiple revenue lines, multiple business models for those revenue lines. It has a SaaS multiple, it has a payments multiple, it's starting mm-hmm. to offer additional services, it's a marketplace. If this app works and it starts to become a consumer brand, you're also getting that. Maybe they'll get into retail at some point. Maybe it goes from e-com to some of the retail-based startup plays and they they bolt on one of those acquisitions. I just think the potential there is is limitless and it's still really early innings. Yeah, they have they have real world stuff, they have digital stuff, they have small company stuff, they have big company stuff, they have payment tech, they have all the things Danny said. Uh, they're also already worth eighty billion, so it's not like there's two hundred x open to them because then they'd be worth sixteen trillion dollars, which would be worth more than everything else in the world. So like I I wholeheartedly concur that they're a cool company. Toby, the CEO, plays StarCraft. That's awesome. Huge fan. Very good. But watching them go from three fifty. I shared this, sorry, three, yeah, 350 in April to 750 in May feels a little aggressive. Tosh? Um, I was just going to just give one note to the information story that sh- shared that a Facebook product executive also was recently hired by Shopify. So maybe that's also some good news since apparently all of Facebook's products somehow make a comeback, even the ones we make fun of. So They make a Are comeback, you- but at other companies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Are we making portal jokes again? I didn't know we were still doing that. Um I got to say, I'd forgotten about that story. Thank you for bringing it up, Tosh. But uh, changing of the guard is how I read that. Someone leaving Facebook to be more ambitious, uh, as Danny said, you know, over Shopify. Well, I think a certain Facebook CEO once said, join a rocket ship. And one wonders where the rocket ships are today. Yeah, yeah. Probably well, not I don't think they're Park. the big blue app, as Facebook calls its own <laughs> service. Um, I want to scoot on to a couple of funding rounds here at the end, but there's been some news in the secondary markets that I think we should touch on just a, at least a little bit because there's some movement behind the scenes that you might not be aware of. If you listened to the show last year, you heard us talk about Shares Post at the top of the show because they were the sponsor. They have been acquired by Forge, another secondary market service. It's also been called a merger. I don't quite know how to read it. It's worth about $160 million in cash and stock. Notably, this is not the only nexus of secondary market activity. NASDAQ bought second market in 15. And Carta, if I'm understanding correctly, has launched Carta X, which is kind of its own secondary effort. So in, in my mind, there's at least kind of three major players in this space. And, and the goal here, Danny, is to let people sell stock before an IPO if they're a, an early investor, say, or an employee. And this has become uh, more common in recent years. Well, certainly. I mean, as companies stay private longer, in, in the 1990s, it was not uncommon for a company to go to IPO in three to four years. You had instant liquidity, even by the time your lockup, you know, you, you barely vested before the company was already public and you could trade it. These days, the average, I think, is like 11.7 years or something on that order. And so, you know, if you're at Airbnb and you started in 2010, guess what? 10 years later, you still can't sell your shares, or at least not without a broker, without trying to find another buyer at a, a price there's no price discovery. There's no public financials. It, it's hard to create a marketplace. And so I think what you're seeing here is a little bit of consolidation and folks trying to kick around the tires and saying, how do we create, even though these companies are private, how do we create a, a marketplace where you can exchange shares from sellers who want to sell to buyers who want to buy, who have wallets, who kind of know what these companies are looking for and have price interests that they are, uh, you know, price targets that they're engaged with. One thing that I was just thinking about, though, when I was considering which of these that I would what I use, because I own some stock in Crunchbase, my former employer, uh, Carta X sounds kind of brill because Carta provides a service that lets companies uh, handle their stock and handle their four and eight valuations kind of in one spot. So my Crunchbase shares, uh, whatever they are, like little bits and bytes on the Internet, uh, exist already in Carta. And so if you said, like, you can sell your shares on Carta X or you can do a ton of legal work and get them over to 
you know, forge slash sheriff's bows, eh, you know, I'm kind of lazy. I can see how there's an advantage there. Um, but I think definitely seeing the two companies come together, providing kind of one larger pool of equity and probably buyers makes a lot of sense, drive more demand, be more attractive. But uh, as you wrote here in the show notes, uh, advertise on equity, get an exit. <laughs> That's not guaranteed. That was a joke. That's not legal advice either. Don't don't call us. From what I hear, uh, they actually got a 10x multiple on the original sale price just because they were in equity. That yes, yes, you heard We're that. We're gonna all here. get in trouble. <laughs> Three, two, one. The problem is, Danny. Oh no, my first is... SEC enforcement action. That's great. <laughs> the problem with that joke, Danny, was that you said it in a complete normal tone of voice. It actually caught me up guard. I thought you were serious. I'm like ten x what? Oh, but your voice was half of the value creation right there. Uh, how deep down this joke can we go? Anyways, we're going to talk about two funny rounds in the play game. Tosh, we're a little short on time. Can you tell us why Quizlet is now a, a unicorn? Yeah, so Quizlet basically is a modern day flashcard startup. It creates digital study guides and students and teachers use them. About two thirds of students in the United States in high school use them and half of college students in the United States use them. So huge, you know, hold on the market. The reason that they're a unicorn is because they just raised 30 million from General Atlantic, which is a investor that has recently also invested in Duolingo, another ed tech unicorn. So, um, you know, they're going to be more international. They're going to add more AI to their platform and hopefully help students, you know, learn faster and kind of coach them along this virtual tutoring train. So, yeah, I was really excited to see it. They closed during a pandemic. So to be clear, congratulations to Quizlet. But like, what is going on with these like micro size rounds at extremely high valuations? We had we had, we had Sarah Cannon at Index doing fifty million into Notion at a two billion valuation. We had was it General Atlantic for for Duolingo as well? General Atlantic for Duolingo, and then we recently saw another EdTech unicorn become EdTech company become a unicorn through a I believe seventy million round, um, which I guess is not as small but oh, it's seven percent three percent i mean you know 30 million at a billion dollar valuation three percent you might as well just buy it on carta x and and call it like why <laughs> even bother i mean a great 5x valuation for for quizlet don't get me wrong but like it, it blows my mind like how does anyone make money in growth investing putting 30 million in? maybe they've done a lot of secondary transactions on the side as i always say we don't know if there's a ton of other stuff going on but like it blows my mind that like here's this magic tiny little number and what what, what the hell's going on over there are you surprised by the price that's being set, Danny, or the small amount of money that's going in to revalue the company? This, the small amount of money going in at a high price. I mean, why would you write a check if you're a large multi $10 billion you know, venture fund like General Atlantic when you're writing a little, it's like a seed check. It is. <laughs> I mean, at scale, I mean, do the math. It's, 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 no, a, no, it's I, a little tiny you're... seed check. So again, like it's great to see the valuation go up. Uh, great job for Quizlet. But it, it, I just don't understand these, this, this growth math. Yeah, no, total. And we might be missing something because before Quizlet had even raised, I had gotten like multiple investors telling me that they're a unicorn. So I like circled back to them and I was like, are you a unicorn already? And then they wouldn't confirm. And now they've raised this new funding and they confirmed. So kind of biting my tongue now for not writing the story before they gave me the permission to. But, you know, there must have been a, a, a bigger growth story much before this round. Speaking of growth, do we know how fast their revenue is expanding? It is 100% year over year, which is the same as it said in 2018. Um, yeah. They didn't show any updated information. So in it's grown 4x since the start of 28. I'm trying to do the math right, man. It's grown a hell of a lot in the last couple of years, which is probably Amen. why it's, it's, it's attracted this kind of money. Um, but I, I do agree, Danny. It is an oddly small bet because you want to get at least you usually 10, 15% of a business, which here would be 100, 150 million, not 30. 
which is a pretty modest amount. Um, but speaking about big dollars, trillions are at stake because retirement is being shaken up by a company called Vise. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is raised some money, Danny. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, Vise, which comes from the word advise, they are a, uh, I would call it an empowerment platform. So I think there's a new class of software tools that says, hey, let's let's assume humans are going to stick around and automate, you know, algorithmic bots are not going to take over the entire universe. And so in the retirement space, we've seen a ton of companies, Wealthfront being among the most prominent, where it's like, you have an algo bot that's just going to manage your money. You're going to go into an app, you click a button, and they give you like a formula from like least risky to most risky, and your money is managed. A lot of people, particularly those who have more than a nominal sum of assets, prefer to actually make a phone call to an actual human before moving a large chunk of their future retirement savings from one stock to another or from one ETF to another. And so Vise is saying, hey, look, there's these financial advisors who are sort of getting squeezed in a world in which you're either moving up market to the private client world and Goldman and, and uh, JP Morgan Chase, or you're getting pushed down market into the algo trading market where there's no fees. Vise is saying, hey, there's still a market for folks in the middle if they have the right tools, things like integrated uh, CRM ideas and talking points for ways to structure different types of investments yep. and giving people clear guidance on like, hey, you know what people are buying today? It's, it's this stock or this ETF. This is what's changing in the marketplace. And here's what you can sell your clients. And so it's interesting as uh, Vice started as a bootstrap company, it actually debuted at TechCrunch Disrupt uh, Battlefield uh, last year. At the Disrupt uh, Happy Hour, uh, they met Sequoia, one of the partners there, followed up, and uh, a couple months later, locked in a $14.5 million Series A led by Sean McGuire at uh, Sequoia. So a couple of years in, it has some really good, interesting revenue traction already, but it's one of, I, I think, a set of companies. I have a couple more actually coming up in the next couple of weeks that are embargoed, but there's a couple of these companies coming up where you know the humans are assumed and we're building tools to empower them. I like that a lot. It also feels very counter narrative to me because I feel like everyone's talking about ML, AI, and how you know we're going to take the people out. We're going to have the computers do it for us. It's going to be so much better, cheaper, faster, whatever. But maybe not. I, I was going to say the the part that made me excited about this was that it's not just pitching to it's not a pitching to the average consumer. I feel like that's um, I guess more unique than what we've been usually seeing with these tools is that it, it's pitching towards people that are in the field that care already. It doesn't have to do any of the handholding in that way, and that to me is is you know different. And there's a lot of capital available for it. As Danny, you wrote in the story, uh, Wealthfront and Betterment have both raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And we've seen lots of money go into other types of financial management services and apps. And so to see this raise, you know, 14 and a half means that there's probably another couple of checks out there if it does well. However, guys, we have to play our game now, which is entitled Play the VC. Uh, this is a new occasional equity segment that we'll only do once if it goes poorly, in which we have to look <laughs> at the rounds that we've discussed on the show and come to a conclusion about which we think is the most likely to succeed. This week, we have Slice raising $43 million from KKR. We have Quizlet raising $0.47 cents at a $1 billion valuation from General <laughs> Atlantic. And finally, we have Vise raising $14.5 million in a Series A that is disrupt-powered. So those are the three selections... And we'll start with Danny. Uh, I was going to throw a wild card. I actually would buy Shopify. You buy stock in Shopify right now. I would buy stock in Shopify. Okay, so pretend though you have to actually have to follow the rules. I would do Vice. <laughs> I would do Vice. Okay. I, 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 I like the Series A plays. I don't like owning pennies at a billion dollar valuation. Okay, uh, Tosh, over to you. I am going with Quizlet unsurprisingly because their new investor is exciting to me. The new investor is like very internationally focused and Quizlet has 
room to grow internationally, which anyone who covers ed tech for two months like I did knows that that's where the money is. <laughs> Tosh is newly focused on ed tech and so has been diving deep into the space. Um, but that's why that's funny. Uh, so I was going to go with Slice because um, our Twitter friend Sar uh, works there and uh, and he's a cool dude. But uh, I have to go with the B2B SaaS company. So I have to go with Fize because that's just the only thing I understand in the world. So uh, that's two votes for Vise, none for Slice, one for Quizlet. And uh, in uh, five years, We'll look back and see how we did, um, and we'll be able to grade our selections. But in the meantime, that is equity for this week. Tosh, Danny, thank you very much, and we'll be back Monday morning.